Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12 and starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. You know, you can often tell how a Christian friend or Christian acquaintance is doing spiritually. You can maybe tell that they are growing in the relationship with the Lord or if they seem to be stagnant, maybe more distant. You can tell many times if they are trusting God more with the hard stuff in life or if maybe even they're resenting God for all that stuff. You can tell sometimes by how they think of other Christians. Do they see them critically, cynically? Or is it a positive and a grateful thing as they think about other believers around them? Are they happy? Do you see them being basically happy? You pick up clues like this from maybe conversations you have with them. You pick up clues maybe on some of the choices or priorities you see in their life. You might even just pick it up from what they post on social media. But you begin to get some kind of a clue of how they're doing spiritually. I think there's a question worth asking. If, if someone, some other believer has come to mind for you who is perhaps more negative, critical, cynical, making questionable choices, whatever it might be. The question worth asking, I think, is are they consistently and meaningfully involved in a local church family? Is there some correlation between our spiritual condition with the Lord and our involvement with one another? in the body of Christ. In these coming weeks, as we dig into the one another's of the New Testament, we're going to discover what I think is really God's design, as we have our new chart out here today, or our banner, life together, living the one another's. See, God intended for us to be involved in each other's life, helping or being helped, encouraging, being supported, these things create strength, these things create maturity, these things create joy that God designed for us to have as part of what he calls his body. So let's uh, kind of introduce the subject today. That's, that's our, our main goal. And to think about the one another's of the New Testament. Now the term one another is two words for us, but actually... Uh, this key New Testament word is actually a single Greek word. Uh, it's used about 60 times in the New Testament by Jesus, Paul, and others to instruct us as believers about how we relate to one another. So it's used really often. And when you see something in Scripture repeated and repeated, you can begin to understand it has a significance or an importance because it's used and described so often. The Greek word, this isn't that important, but it's kind of interesting, is uh, pronounced alelon, 
which in English almost sounds like all alone, and it means exactly the opposite, all right? (laughs) It means we are not all alone, but rather we are joined together. And the definition of one another, this important term used so often, is basically mutually or reciprocally. In other words, it's a two-way relationship. It's not a top-down kind of a thing. There is a mutual back-and-forth relationship. So we come up with this main point. One another describes the relationships Christ intended for believers in the church. We are not independent Christians. You know, me and God out in the woods. (laughs) We are rather interdependent. And and so, so the issue we're going to see today is, first of all, and this is a, a very important starting place, that we are already connected to one another. If you are connected to Christ, you are already connected to one another. I have uh, provided at the back of the literature table a two-page kind of handout, which I think has all the one another's of the New Testament. So there are 60 of them. This has... 58, but there's two in a couple of verses. And I would encourage you to take one of these home, okay? Take it home and uh, study it, highlight it, read it through in the coming weeks, and, and use it to ask yourself, am I pursuing what Christ designed for me as part of the local church family? Is this, is this the direction... I'm going. You'll see that most of them are, are positive, things we should do. Some are like, uh, like a negative, don't lie to one another, don't grumble against each other, those, those kinds of things. You'll see that some are repeated. The one that's uh, most repeated is love one another. Fifteen of those. That must be pretty important. Otherwise, it's amazingly how most of the others are, are individual and a bit different uh, from the others. So I'd encourage you to take one of those. So the first principle is that you are already connected to all believers if you are connected to Christ. Um, I don't know. I I think I remember when I first saw this. I think it was a mug that my brother-in-law got from his brother. It said this, I smile because you're my brother. I laugh because there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) Would you just take this tiny exercise? You aren't going to have to do anything else. Just look. Turn your heads now. Don't look at me. Look at, look at the other people in the room, okay? Just scan a little bit, okay? If you're a believer in Christ and they're a believer in Christ, they're your brother and sister in Christ, and there is nothing you can do about it. You are already connected if you have placed your faith in Christ. So let's think a little bit about how, when, and why this is true. How did this happen? That's where we pick it up in 1 Corinthians 12.12. Paul says the body is a unit. And at this point, he's just talking about the physical body as an illustration. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, that is, Christ's body, spiritually. For we were all baptized by one spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit 
to drink. So how is it that we have been connected to each other? It is through the baptism of the Spirit. Now that's a sometimes misunderstood term. The baptism of the Spirit has, has no water involved. Okay? It's interesting, another point, that water baptism actually is a symbol of this spiritual baptism. So it's not a water baptism, and baptism of the Spirit does not refer to some kind of ecstatic experience like speaking in tongues. That's, that's not what it is. The baptism of the Spirit refers to our new identity. To be baptized essentially is to be identified with something, baptized into something. And so we have a new identity in that we, when we believe in Christ as our Savior, we become part of this organism, this entity called the church or the body of Christ. And the reason we are connected to one another is because we've all received the whole the same Holy Spirit. So the moment you believe, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, and if he indwells me and you and you and you, we are thereby connected. It kind of works like a power grid. When, when the power, a storm knocks the power out in part of town, it all goes dark, and the transformer or whatever is repaired, and it all comes back on, and you can see we are on the same power grid. And likewise, we are on the same power grid spiritually, and we have been invisibly but truly connected by the Spirit's indwelling presence in us. So that's how it happened that we're connected. When did this happen? It says in verse 13, we were all baptized by one Spirit. So the baptism of the Spirit cannot mean something that comes along in stages or something that you attain to as some kind of higher level. Because, in fact, the Corinthians were hardly a model church. They were a problem church. But in spite of the problems and the immaturity, Paul says, you have all been baptized. So clearly it goes back to when they believed in Christ because he's, a, he's assuring them, you already have the Spirit. You have all been baptized. So it happened when we believe in Christ. It's one of the many invisible but crucial things that happen at the moment we put our faith in Christ as Savior. A similar uh, illustration would be the family illustration that's used a few times in the New Testament. We have been adopted. Romans 8, 15, and 16, Ephesians 1, 5, where it says we have been adopted as sons. That's also a new identity, isn't it? Because the day the, the judge hits that gavel and pronounces you with a new name, you are adopted, and that is our new identity. God chose to adopt you, and he had chose and he chose to adopt every other one who puts their faith in Christ. And so that's how we came to be connected to the sometimes frustrating and very unfinished people around us. And there we are. It happened through the Spirit. It happened when we believed. Why did he connect us together like this? Let's continue reading verse 14. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. You can't just think yourself out of this relationship. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So he's really developing this, this body illustration, and, and he's coming to the fact that it's like that in the church family as well. And so he says, all the parts of the body are needed. I need the body. I need the body. Foot, hand, ear, and eye. Which one is unnecessary? Need your feet to run. Need your hands to pick up the coffee. Need ears to have the conversation. Need your eyes to drive the car. And so I need the body. You need the body. God has placed the parts of the body every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So he, he gave you a new identity, but then he placed you uniquely with who you are into the body. Later on in this passage it says, now you are, part, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. So now he's applying the illustration. A similar way in then Romans 12:5. So in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member This is important. Each member belongs to all the others. You belong to each other. So not only are you connected, but you cannot live independently because you were placed in the body to benefit others. So I need the body, but I'm needed in the body as well. So what part are you? Let's, using the illustration, let's say you're an eye. Going to need your eyes to run. You need eyes, you you can do a better job drinking coffee with your eyes, okay? You definitely need your eyes to to drive, unless you use a new self-driving software or something. So I am needed... Because of who I am is what uh, Paul is telling us. That's the body metaphor. So, Open Door Bible Church is effective to the degree that each of us is functioning as part of the body. Open Door Bible Church is ineffective to the degree that we are not functioning as God designed us to. So, we are connected, but are we functioning why does, why does God consider functioning not to be optional? It's because he's placed us in a certain way. Uh, this uh, Romans passage introduces the subject then of spiritual gifts. And we aren't studying the gifts right now, but we'll get the idea with, with what it says. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace, so God gave you something you didn't deserve. What is it? Grace given to us if your gift is, and then it begins a list of some of the gifts. This is a partial list. There's four passages that describe them. But you can see that serving, teaching, mercy, whatever it might be, we need that those parts, the church, the body of Christ needs these different gifts and many others. 
Now, in one real sense, this passage and, and 1 Corinthians describes the universal church. Keep in mind that the word church in the New Testament is used one of two ways. It can refer to the entire worldwide body of Christ, all believers, okay? Or it can refer to the local church. But the reality is that the worldwide church never meets until heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That church never meets, so anything that happens, happens on a local church level. Kind of like you you can't buy a latte. If you want a latte, you cannot go to Starbucks corporate. It's too far away. So you go to Grafton, Starbucks. If you want a Big Mac, you don't go to McDonald's corporate. You go to exit 100 and maybe your neighbor works there. And that's the one who's going to make your Big Mac, right? So it's going to be something personal and local for you to have the latte or the Big Mac. And the same is true that if Christ is going to accomplish something in the church, it doesn't happen invisibly and virtually. It happens with real people like you and me in a particular area gathered together to accomplish God's purposes. If he's going to make an impression for the gospel, if he's going to make an impact in Ozaki County or around the world, if he's going to encourage and, and create service and, and in love and meaningful relationship, it's going to happen here. The one another's happen here. I didn't begin this series because I think that Open Door Bible Church is uh, so ineffective. In fact, I think we're rather effective. I am constantly encouraged just to kind of be in the know uh, of, of how the body is involved with one another. If you brought your kids today to be in a Sunday school class, there'll be a teacher who prepared a lesson and cares about your kid. If you put a baby in the nursery, there'll be someone there who loves him or her. If you bring your teens on Wednesday night, there are mentors and guides and and adults who love and want to see your kids grow in Christ came to the service here, and, and, and this was prepared. The technology is, is functioning. And the building that we're hoping to use part of in just a couple of weeks, so many people have given so much money to be able to give us that. And there are people who are working, so a couple of people who in their early retirement don't feel retired because they're here all the time finishing up the things that take place between the contractors. There are people who are going home from a women's study, men's study, adult Bible fellowship throughout the week and they go home more encouraged and willing to keep, with, keep their eyes on Christ in spite of the situation because people are serving one another. So in so many ways I'm really, really encouraged. But the passion that I have is that we would let these scriptures be a mirror. That's what James says the scripture should be, a mirror. We look into it and say, am I functioning in the body of Christ the way God designed me to function? And, and, and I can't tell you how that should be. It doesn't mean that you're going to fill one of these roles that I've just described. Many times, the way we are going to, in fact, most of the ministry that takes place is not one of these jobs. 
That's like, a, that's like a platform, a starting place in one sense. But I also had the opportunity to know sometimes a lot of the different difficult issues that somebody is going through as a believer. And it's amazing to hear how many people are involved in encouraging, providing, and, and supporting that person who's hurting. And everyone grows from that. That is the body of Christ. There's no, there's no staff of pastors that you could hire to replace the calls, the visits, the texts, the meals, the encouragement that takes place because the body is connected to one another. So I'm excited about that. But how about you? What happens if some limb of your body is unused. You know, what happens when you've been in a cast for a long time? A couple of things. One, one of the things that happens is your, your, your muscles begin to atrophy. Uh, you're going to need some, some therapy at different times if something's been immobilized. It needs to function. Again, it shrinks by unuse. I read about a condition called amblyopia, if the eye is unused for an extended period of time, if you patch an eye for months and months or a couple of years or whatever, and then we take it off, the pathways between the eye and the brain will have been affected so that you come out with a blurred vision or, or crossed eyes because it no longer knows how to function. Is it possible that over time we have developed an atrophy or amblyopia? The other effect of this weakened condition is, if we picture the, the guys on the hill working together, you kind of just feel like if you did a cutout of that last guy, he's on the mountain all by himself. Because there's a time when you're going to need the body, and the body, in that sense, needs you. But what if we responded to God's word and says, I want to engage in the body of Christ the way Christ attended, intended? What's going to keep us from that? I'd like to think a little bit about some of the barriers, obstacles, why we resist the one another. This is a very partial list. One is hurts. You've had bad experiences. Undeniable. Hurts hurt, don't they? And it's always relationships. That's one of the reasons the one another's are so important because you come across the principle forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you've been hurt. Or if you've hurt one another, hurt somebody else, confess your sins to one another. These are hard things, which, by the way, is why it's so important that we have been baptized by the Spirit. He indwells us, because this, this list, 60 things, is not just a whole bunch of shoulds. It's should with empowerment. The Holy Spirit enables us to forgive one another, to be transparent and confess our sins to one another where there are hurts. Another reason we might resist is personality. I'm an introvert, right? 
Everybody, just, a lot of people have thought that. You know, I'm, I, I'm just really okay by myself. Really? In other words, you don't want people to take interest in you or care about you? You see, to, we, we are all people, person, but we have different personalities. These one another's are, have nothing to do with personality. Serve one another? Does that take a certain personality? Pray for one another? Bear, bear one another's burdens? That's a huge one. That's basically listening. What personality do you need to listen? Well, you will have to get to know someone to be able to listen to them, but the body of Christ deeply needs people who listen to one another's burdens. But it takes some risk, because you might want to get to know someone, and the door kind of closes, and boy, that's awkward, and I guess they aren't interested in me listening to them. I'd love to listen to them. No, that just means... Because you don't know where they're at in their spiritual journey. They're maybe not open, or maybe they have plenty of people listening to them. So you move on. Personality is one reason we resist. Similar to this is one we'd call fear. I feel inadequate or embarrassed. I just I recently came across an article that was uh, analyzing why people, some people don't want to go to a, a gym to work out. Just, just studying those who don't want to do that. And their cost and, and distance and inconvenience. But you know the number one reason was intimidated by other people who are working out at the gym. And I, I get that. But it's similar to what I one time heard a man say, I don't go to Bible studies because I don't know the Bible very well. Now think about that. It actually made perfect sense to him. I don't go to Bible studies because I think I'll be embarrassed because they know more than I do. But by so doing, this logic kept him from the life-giving Word of God. Fear. Just two more. Pride and shame. These are very different. Pride is where I feel I don't need these people, I'm better than them. Shame is, I don't want to be exposed, I'm not as good as all of them. And there's this, I hear that so often, well, you know, everybody else at church, they don't, they don't have the problems I have. And they, thinking, oh, if you only knew everybody else in church. <laughs> There again, that's where the one another's are designed by God. Because if we're struggling with the pride issue, we need to learn to accept one another. Don't judge one another. And if we're struggling with, our, with, with, with uh, the, the shame, or, uh, be kind and compassionate. That's what we need from one another. Kind, compassionate, people understanding that everybody is weak and everybody has failed. And we begin to be transparent with one another. We actually all long for relationships that are marked by grace and uh, truth, acceptance, and trust. But we will have to face the barriers, the struggles, the hard things. And you know what? It's actually in those hard challenges, those awkward conversations, the starts and stops, that's actually when we are growing. 
That is one of the biggest indicators that we are growing because we have pushed out of our comfort zones to live connected. We are connected, but to then live more connected as God intended. So that's an overview of God's design of the the body. Now, I'm about to say something that might seem like a contradiction, but it's not. And that is that the one and other passages are not for everybody. They're just for believers. The one and other passages are for the family of God. The first thing we saw is that we are already connected if you are connected to Christ. But you are connected to Christ only if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. So it's like we need to take a big step back just in case you're here this morning and you're not sure that you're a part of this family. When Priscilla and I go to Costco, we're asked to show our membership card as we come in because you have to prove that you have paid for the privilege of buying way much more stuff than you actually need. You needed two of them. You went home with 24 and a couple of bags of potato chips the size of pillows. Even the, even the, even the gas, right there it says at the gas pump, members only, right? So how do you become a member of the body of Christ? Because nothing we've said today matters if you're not connected to Christ you won't be connected to the people, the body of Christ. There's a lot of differences between the church and Costco, but one would be (laughs) you can't buy a membership into the body of Christ. It is unavailable for you to purchase. So who's going to pay for your membership? Turn with me to Ephesians 1. A couple of books later, First, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, Ephesians of course, is a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote, inspired by God, to a particular church, just like Corinthians or Romans. This is written to the city of Ephesus, the believers at the church in Ephesus. And so he's telling them, he's reviewing for them about their personal salvation. The first three chapters of Ephesians are one of the best concise uh, expressions or descriptions of how it is that you become part of the family of God. That's the first three chapters. The second three chapters of Ephesians tell us then about how we function in the body of Christ. And that's where you'll find some of the one another's. So how do we enter the family? Verse 7, chapter 1. In him, referring to Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That's an incredible statement. In Christ we have redemption. The word redemption is a money term. It's it's a payment term applied here to our eternal salvation. 
someone had to pay for our sins. We have redemption, how? Through his, Christ's blood. It's through Christ's death that we have redemption. The only payment that God accepts for membership into his family is the blood of Christ. Everything else is monopoly money. The only payment he accepts is the payment of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the only one who could make a sacrifice that was holy and acceptable to God. For centuries before Christ, as you read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant arrangement was that God told believers, bring these animals to sacrifice. And the priests would slit their throats and the blood. And it seems so strange to us, but it was a way in which the people were acknowledging that their sin deserved death. And there's also a way by which the one coming in obedience with that sacrifice was saying, God, I realize that you are somehow going to forgive my sins. And so God was forgiving them through these temporary but repeated sacrifices under the Old Covenant. But we know from the book of Hebrews it says the blood of sheep and goats can never take away sins. So that wasn't solving the sin problem. You know what it was doing? It was taking the sin of those people and putting it on the divine credit card. And God would allow them to put the guilt of their sin for our, our illustrative purposes on a divine credit card. And the, the guilt and sin piled up. But yet they were forgiven. Because God had a plan in which he was going to pay off that debt. And so they brought animal after animal after animal until God sent his own son as a human being. And as, as he was walking, John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb, Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Up to that point, the sin of the world had not been taken away. It had piled up. With the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, all of the sin of all the world of all time was put upon him by the Father. And the Father punished his own perfect Son as the only acceptable sacrifice and punished all sin of all time. And he paid off the credit card of all the sin that happened before him. And... Christ's death and resurrection purchased a prepaid debit card for all of us who would live after. So that indeed he was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. All sin, he, it was all paid for by Christ at that time. The sad delusion of religious people everywhere is that we have to pay or help pay for our sins. Seriously, what can we add to the sufficiency of the death of God's only Son and His resurrection from the dead? 
monopoly money. Anything else, all of our righteousness, Paul wrote in, in, in Romans, is like filthy rags. Wow, you know what said that? So how do you access the prepaid debit card? How do you activate it? There's a lot of uh, gift cards that go unused. I'm sure that's where they make their money. But your Aunt Susie doesn't know what to get you, gets you a $20 Target card, and you take it home, thank you very much, and sits it, and it just never gets used. It gets lost, or you use it once, and you wonder if it's all gone, right? There is, there are a lot of unused debit card amounts in the world spiritually. Because Christ paid for the sins of all the world of all time. But the question is, have you activated, accessed your card? On what basis would that happen for you? What does it say? It's in accordance, verse 7, still in Ephesians 1. It's in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. The basis will be grace. Grace means undeserved unmerited. I didn't do it. Did God grudgingly kind of like, well, no, it says he lavished it upon us. So God is not a divine judge who just thinks and looks and says, well, if, if, I, if I add up everything you've done and I think you probably come close to qualifying, if you promise from now on to do better and what you did really wasn't that, no, he says, all has sinned and come short. You can do nothing. I did it all to cross. But I am anxious, God says, to lavish my grace on you. That is how. And that's the only way we can become included in the body of Christ. Go down to verse 13. And you also were included in Christ. We should be on the edge of our seats after, after realizing what Christ has done for us. Now this is how we can be included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so you have to hear and understand what happened on the cross, then it says, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So understanding that we have redemption, payment for our sin, forgiveness, through the cross and cross alone, you and I can be included in the body of Christ only if we have believed. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. Having believed. So, first of all, have you heard and understood the truth that only Christ can pay for your sin? You can't pay, you can't help pay. Have you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, the good news that the word gospel means? Have you heard and understood the word of truth? So then the question is, have you believed? Because if you believe, then you are included in Christ. If you believe, then you, the Holy Spirit, that promised seal is then in you, and you are joined to the body of Christ. This term, believe in Christ, is so important. We said that 
the one and others are used 60 times, the word believer faith is used some 100 times in the New Testament as the only criteria, the only way to access and have eternal life. Faith and belief are the same word, actually, they're the noun and the verb. So the question is, have you believed in Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ? So go to chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 8 and 9. Actually, we'll put it on the screen as well. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is that term, through believing. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Having understood that we have redemption, the payment for our sin, the forgiveness of our sin, only through the cross, the blood of Christ, we now can make the decision that is essential for us to be forgiven and have access to the prepaid provision for our sin. So the question is, have you put your trust in Christ for eternal life? What are you trusting in? Sometimes we know things best by its opposite, and that's why Paul made it very clear in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that we are saved by faith, and it's a gift, and it's not by works. It's not something we can earn or deserve or pay for. So what are you trusting in? If you've been a part of Open Door for a while, you've probably seen three circles before. C, W, and C plus W. For me, this is, is helpful. I hope it's helpful for you to kind of discern where you are spiritually with God. C refers to, I'm trusting in Christ alone. So the question is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Would you say you're trusting in Christ alone, he died for your sins and rose again? Or would you say, I'm trusting in my works, I'm trusting in I've been a good person, or I've gone to church, or I went through a religious ritual, I did this, I did this, I got a list, you're trusting in works. Or would you say, C plus W, I'm trusting in Christ plus works. Well, what, is, what does Ephesians tell us? In him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins through his blood, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Period. According to Ephesians 2, it's through faith, and it's not of works, and it's not Christ plus works. Because you know what happens with that one? It's just kind of thrown in there, I think, to clarify, I think. That's why it helps me is if you think it's Christ plus works, it really still depends on me. Second and third circle are really spiritually the same thing. Because they both rely on me. So why did Christ even have to die? It still is on me. We, we eliminate the value of the cross of Christ if we think it's Christ plus me. It's Christ alone. So what are you trusting in? And if you have not come to a place where you have personally put your trust in Christ alone, I am just inviting you to do that this morning. 
if, if, if it has become clear, because the Holy Spirit works through his word, that salvation is not by your efforts or your efforts combined with Christ's efforts, but it's entirely dependent upon Christ alone, then this would be the time to make that decision. God knows your heart. He's, he knows your thoughts right now. And it would be you simply telling him, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I could not earn salvation. I realize that Christ completely paid for my sin debt. And so now I am putting my trust in Christ alone. Can you make that your prayer? And as you do that, we have the promise of God that we have been saved at that moment. That is when we are, chapter 1, included in Christ. And so I urge you as we close in prayer to make that decision. And the result will be, if you just look back at chapter 2, verse 7, it's by grace, which is also repeated in verse 5, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's so that heaven will be a time and a place and a continual, very real experience, us in Christ, where we give him all the praise for having accomplished our salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are again reminded that we are unworthy of your salvation. And we are reminded in our scripture today that we only have the forgiveness of sin through the payment that your son Jesus made on the cross for us. Thank you so much for that incredible uh, sacrifice bearing the punishment of our sin to provide salvation for free. I pray that each of us who are already believers in Christ will seek to Live out the relationships that you intended for us to have with one another because we value the connection we have with you and thus with each other. I pray for any here today that is uh, struggling with the understanding of the gospel and the clarity and the freeness of it all, that you would uh, help them in their own hearts and minds to uh, understand your full and sufficient payment for them and that they would pray.